You are listening to the Deep Energy Literacy Podcast, part of Just Powers, an interdisciplinary and community-engaged network of research projects focused on climate justice issues and socially just approaches to energy transition. I'm Dr. Sheena Wilson, and in this podcast, we explore the idea of deep energy literacy. In this first series, titled Deep Celerities, we begin by investigating questions, issues, challenges, and potentials of solar energy. Specifically, this series will shed light on a solar energy infrastructure project proposed for installation in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada on Treaty 6 territory. This solar project proposed by EPCOR, the municipal utility, for installation at their E.L. Smith water treatment plant has evoked a range of divergent and sometimes unanticipated responses and imaginaries as stakeholders speculate about what futures are possible and preferable at the intersections of energy futures, ecological futures, indigenous futures on land rights, feminist futures, municipal futures, and climate futures, to name but a few. Through a series of interviews that seek to explore these diverse perspectives, we examine both the perceived challenges and potentials of this energy transition project. Focused on deep energy literacy, we look to these conversations for insights into approaches and strategies that have the potential to disrupt power relations and create more just energy futures for all. Hello, and thank you for listening to the Just Power's Deep Energy Literacy Podcast. I'm Jessie Beyer, producer for the podcast, and in this episode, I sit down with Dr. Sheena Wilson to discuss the impetus for this series, which is focused on deep celerities, as well as her broader research program and thoughts on energy transition today. I'm so excited to talk to you about um, all of these things. So excited to talk about the solar project and the other things you've been thinking about around deep energy literacy. Yeah, me too. I've actually really been looking forward to just chatting and thinking through this and um, thinking my way through these complex problems and doing it a bit together with you in tandem because I've been doing a lot of thinking with me and my screen and it's nice to... To have somebody to think with. Totally. I thought we could start by by chatting a little bit about how you became interested in the, the solar project, specifically the one that's slated for the uh, Edmonton River Valley. Right. That's a kind of interesting story, actually. So um, I think I'm quite well known locally for working on issues related to what I term deep energy literacy and working on petroculture and energy transition and ecologies of all sorts and social justice. And then there was a point, uh, you know, sometime in 2018 when people from all different parts of my life started coming up to me and saying, have you heard about the E.L. Smith solar proposal? And what do you think about this? And many of them were very up in arms and they were not the people that I would expect to be upset about a solar project. They are, you know, activists who've invested time and energy into solar commoning projects. And they're people who are really worried about, you know, conservation and and energy transition and ecologies as well. And so suddenly my ears perked up because I had seen this proposal come across a committee table that I belong to. So I started to pay much closer attention and to follow it and to really start to drill down about why these unusual suspects were upset about the E.L. Smith solar farm. And um, and as time went on, the things that were revealed became much, much more interesting um, because what people were upset about in 2018 are not necessarily the same things that they were upset about by 2019. 
Wow, yeah. And I think that speaks uh, to some of the things that you're interested in in terms of your broader kind of research program, and that is how these kinds of community projects or projects within, in this case, municipalities, um, on the one hand, the responses that they get from different parts of the public, different communities, but also how these projects kind of reveal uh, the complexity of new energy projects or energy transition projects. Um, so yeah, I, I, was, I was wondering if you wanted to speak a little bit more about that in terms of how this case study in a way, or this kind of um, what's happening in Edmonton maybe relates to some of the broader questions you're asking about energy transition and uh, what you also call deep energy literacy. Right. So deep energy literacy is a term that I've been talking about for a few years now, I think, sort of before this idea of energy justice had become popular and common a common phrase. Um, and for me, deep energy literacy is an understanding of how energy shapes our societies and our lives and the ways in which energy permeate the energy systems that are built up in our world permeate every facet of our life in very complex ways. And I guess what one could think of it as is maybe like a more holistic worldview. Um, you know, I argue against these ways in which we think about energy or natural resources or water or whatever it is in these very siloed categories that just simply don't work because the world is an interconnected place. Of course, when you think about things in that way, they're more complicated. It's hard to get things done and it demands something additional from us all. Um, but I really do believe that having not used a deep energy literacy lens is how we've ended up in this problem, this siloing of issues until, you know, one person's solution is creating the next person's problem. And while that might create, you know, a great employment cycle, now that we're at a point in which we're using 2.5 planets to sustain ourselves, we need to think differently about how we live in the world and live relationally. So for me, for example, there is no... Um, there is no way of thinking about energy transition without thinking about reconciliation or the missing and murdered Indigenous women or the oppression of people of colour or, you know, whatever the social justice issues are, because all of these issues are part of complex relations of power that are organised and organised themselves and have been intentionally organised around controlling the energy systems that power our communities and our global economy. Yeah, I think that you explain uh, really well the kind of complex nature of some of these uh, phenomenons, some of these kinds of questions around energy transition. And in this series, the focus is not just on kind of deep energy literacy and energy transition broadly, but more specifically on the potentials and challenges of solar energy. Mm -hmm. um, so solar energy is one of many kind of renewable um, uh, propositions or propositions for renewable energy. And at, at first glance, maybe the, it... it it seems promising. There's many ways in which solar is sold as this kind of very bright solution maybe to energy uh, transition um, questions and the, just energy transition more generally. Um, but as I learned from your work, um, the you know, these this shifts to something like solar energy, of course, is not inherently liberatory. There are many complex factors at play. So um, I was curious to hear a little bit more about your thoughts on maybe solar specifically and, and kind of stemming off your deep energy literacy work, this idea of deep solarities. Um, so how might solar play into the provocations on deep energy literacy? Right. So, you know, taking the vocabulary that, you know, we've developed as 
part of the energy humanities community. Um, I've been thinking about solarities and, you know, we've been thinking together and we've been thinking with the after oil, you know, community as well. And we went to Montreal in the spring and had a workshop on feminist solarities that, you know, ran alongside a lot of other uh, kinds of solarities. And I've been thinking about the fact that a lot of this work that I do kind of consolidated as, uh, you know, an intellectual community or a scholarly community around the Petrocultures uh, research group that I co-founded and co-direct now, and that started in 2012. And so if we, we think the word petroculture, which then later really birthed the discipline of the energy humanities, right, as it gained momentum and in a very, like, rapid way. For me, this, the, the link between thinking solar and thinking uh, petroculture is that if we don't think meaningfully using the tools of deep energy literacy that help us to understand the deeply interconnected relations that we all have, that all of the ecosystems of the world have that, um, you know, people have to land, et cetera, et cetera, then we're just going to repeat the same mistakes. And so I wondered if maybe deep celerities might be a solution that comes out of deep energy literacies that's, you know, a positive remaking of those power relations organized around physical infrastructures of a new energy system and the way more socially equitable relations, uh, social relations and multi-species relations and e ecological relations have been built up around that energy system. I don't know. Those are just the things that I'm thinking through, right? Because one of my concerns, one of the things that I have argued from the very beginning of doing all of this research is that we don't want to fetishize oil or energy in any way. Because when we say in some way that oil is bad and it has created all of these negative uh, things, then that also makes a space to imagine that if, say, solar is good, it will produce all of these fabulous things. And that's not how the world works. Oil is not inherently bad. Oil does nothing. Oil is a substance. It is a, you know, it is an outcome of basically... Um, uh, it's an outcome of uh, what, like compost, like it's yeah, like deep time, geologic yeah. kind of time, as well as like chemical kind of reactions, these kinds of things. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it, it's it's matter in the world, and we said, wow, this is really valuable because it has the potential to create all sorts of energy. And then some people took control of oil, and owned oil and sold oil and, you know, did all sorts of things that meant that oil was very valuable and that the people who controlled oil had a lot of power. And it's really a shame that I didn't shut my phone off before we started all of this. Um, and so if we do the same thing with solar, those same things will happen. And so I have always, you know, for many years sort of ended many of my conference presentations with a warning about not fetishizing alternative energies as somehow inherently good. And now as we move into a moment where climate change is being recognized globally, we're setting quite high standards and targets internationally that are difficult to even conceive of how to meet. And many, many municipalities are declaring an energy, like a... Uh, climate emergency, how do we respond quickly and meaningfully without assuming that these, you know, solar projects, for example, are somehow inherently good or inherently liberatory or more positive or better than the fossil systems that they're replacing, right? It's so easy to do that. And yet what I see happening is perhaps even worse power relations developing because we're saying, well, it's a time of crisis. We'll deal with social justice later, 
because we really have to deal with the CO2 load of the planet. And that is not how justice is achieved. It is not achieved by deferring it later and later and later after all of the systems have been made. And we would have to literally remake the world once over again. So as we have to now remake things, we have to make them in socially just ways and think in complicated ways the whole time at a pace that's very difficult to achieve. But, you know, our other options are to carry on with business as usual and then the outcome is quite clear. And it is quite clear to me that those solutions are not adequate to the challenge of climate crisis. Those are Band-Aid solutions that might reduce the CO2 load, but they're really not going to address the root causes of what created the climate crisis in the first place, which is dealing with nature as though it's distant from us as humans, which is acting as though it's a resource for our exploitation, and which also involves treating other bodies, bodies of color, women's bodies, and as resources also to be exploited. And so we have to completely transform the way we think of our human relationality to the planet and other species and ecosystems in order to live better, more meaningfully connected lives that sound like kind of better to me than what I live right now, to be frank. Thank you. I think that that's almost a really good transition, actually, to think through the EPCOR solar project, because these are some of the things that that are starting to arise is this question of how, because of the speed and things like in Edmonton, the declaration of climate emergency, there's certain kinds of processes that are now kind of moving forward, but also at the same time, people in different groups coming forward to, to interrupt a little bit and ask these questions about like who is benefiting from these, uh, the, in this case, the solar farm. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you kind of became involved involved in the um, the project that is slated for the Edmonton River Valley, which is uh, currently zoned as recreational use, but there are all sorts of processes in place right now being pushed forward in order to rezone that area in order to be able to put uh, this new kind of industry um, on that land. And so, yeah, we can talk more about the, the process. And of course, throughout the series, we get to speak to many different people about how they also became involved or their responses to the project. But maybe we could talk a little bit more about... Um, how you kind of became involved in the in the project or how, how you've been hearing about it in relation to some of the, the spaces that you're in and how this project might provide a site for researching the idea of, of deep energy literacy and what we've been talking about so far. So I don't know how involved I am. I'm kind of observing and trying to guide where possible and think this through. I'm not imagining that I'm truly involved in the project, nor am I imagining that I have all of the solutions, um, nor am I observing from a distance with an academic lens and just critiquing everything. I mean, I'm thinking meaningfully about, geez, what do we do in these kinds of situations and literally taking it back to my colleagues and saying, how do we manage this this time? How do we manage it next time? So for a bit of background, um, I serve on what was formerly called the Edmonton uh, Energy Transition Advisory Committee. Uh, that advises Edmonton City Council on energy-related issues because the city of Edmonton uh, is surprisingly quite sophisticated uh, about its uh, energy transition plans and strategies. Um, we have some colleagues at the University of Alberta and, of course, the mayor and a lot of the administration to thank for that because this is also thankless work in the province of Alberta. Um, but I came onto that committee at a time when the energy transition uh, plan was already in place and it requires uh, a number of different things of city council. It requires, uh, you know, the consideration of energy transition and carbon and other things as we move forward. And I'm not good at quoting. Maybe we can put something on the on the website for people to look at or direct them to these plans. But um, EPCOR, 
has proposed to put a solar project into the or into or onto the lands of the the water treatment facility in the southwest quadrant of the city of Edmonton for a few different reasons. There's a lot of different uh, justifications for it. One of them is a kind of resiliency, right? So the committee has now transformed to be called Energy Transition Adaptation and Resilience Committee or some such thing. <laughs> it's, it's a bit hard to remember these acronyms. Um, and the idea is that if... It, that, that Edmonton, according to the energy transition strategy, should be producing a certain percentage of its power locally, right, um, by a specific date. And that if we have solar panels on the water treatment plant, if there were an energy shortfall or an energy outage, that at least the water source of the city would be relatively secured, right? So that is that is some of the thinking behind it. Um, but all sorts of so it came it came to the Energy Transition Advisory Committee uh, in 2018, I believe in December of 2018. We do have a timeline. I should have pulled that up in December of 2018 um, for us to look at. Uh, we did approve it on the basis that it did look like a good energy plan. And after that point, however, uh, other issues started to be raised. Like uh, it's in the Edmonton River Valley, and the River Valley is. I think uh, the River Valley, interestingly, is a space that Edmontonians take a lot of pride in. It's an, ex it's, it's an expansive green space inside an urban area, uh, one of the largest in North America, I believe. Um, but the interesting histories behind that are that one of the reasons that we have such a fantastic River Valley is that the river has flooded several times. And so there came a point at which uh, residential development on the riverbanks was no longer permitted because communities had been flooded so many times. We had more than one in 100 floods. And so um, that is part of the reason that we have this green space. Um, and then the river, of course, has a long history um, of, you know, being an Indigenous uh site for trade and uh, living and life and all of those things. And so um, when people started to question, when people started to question this E.L. Smith solar farm project, I thought, oh, geez, I, I was on the committee that approved that. Oh, I, tr I tried to ask all the right questions. I asked questions about consultation. I tried to drill down, you know, read the documents. But the presentation was made by EPCOR and these presentations often look very glossy and it was hard to uh, read between the lines. I asked the questions that one could imagine might be problematic and I got answers to them. Um, and people were very concerned initially uh, about sort of the conservation of the river valley or wildlife corridors that would be disrupted by putting a major industrial project into the river valley. Now, it should be said that the, that the treatment plant already exists there and that the treatment plant actually um, used to be about 18 or 20 kilometers outside of the city of Edmonton. But another problem we have in Edmonton is urban sprawl. So now it's actually inside, you know, um, what is now the, the Edmonton municipal area and, you know, nestled right in with... Uh, residential neighborhoods, right? So there was some concern about, um, you know, not in my backyard or what will my view be, those kinds of things. Um, and access. People uh, concerned about the River Valley are often concerned about uh, conserving it for recreational use, right, and want it to be accessible to Edmontonians. And then others are concerned because it's a space for wildlife and ecologies and fairly sophisticated ecologies. And this spot, particularly in the river, uh, in the, the river flow, as I understand it, is uh, a very interesting site because it hasn't been flooded very many times. And so given that it hasn't been flooded very many times, we've now since discovered um, that there are 
uh, indigenous archaeological remains there, right? Quite important ones that have now stalled the process. So that's sort of a very quick overview of what's happened over the last 18 months or so. Of course, when the Energy Transition Advisory Council voted on this, there was no inkling that that, that there were indi- these were indigenous uh, ceremonial sites. In fact, Enoch Cree Nation had condoned and given their approval for the project at a certain point. And then once these things were discovered much later, they withdrew their support. And so I went to my own committee literally a year later in the to, on the December meeting in 2019. We'd approved it in 2018. By 2019, December, we knew quite a lot more about it. And I said, you know, giving the history and the overview of what's happened in the last year, and given the fact that we're trying to make good decisions on short timelines in order to address the climate emergency, right? The city of Edmonton declared a climate emergency in August of 2019. What do we do? Like, how do we model good decision-making practice and good policy-making practice when uh, making quick decisions means sometimes that we discover things partway through a process? And in this case, we've discovered something that, you know, means that quite likely we would not, I would certainly hope I would not have voted in favor of this project had I had all of the information we have now a year later. So what does this mean? Does this mean that we should actually withdraw our support much like Enoch did? Or does this mean that we uh, think differently about how we move forward? So how in a time of climate crisis do we move quickly and make decisions because not making a decision is also a decision when we decide to constantly defer for 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 years moving on climate action because it can always wait till the next budget cycle or some other reason or there's a reason to defer. (laughs) You know, now that we can no longer defer anymore on these things, um, how do we make decisions quickly and then how do we be really grown up about saying, oh, gee, that wasn't the best decision. You know, maybe let our egos take a bit of a hit and say, well, maybe we should withdraw our support now. And there are always all sorts of politics around this. Of course, you know, I don't want to get into all the nitty gritty, but, you know, committees make decisions and then their reputations are called into question. So you don't want to call into question the reputation of a committee that is doing largely good work supporting the administration and doing good work informing city council about decisions to somehow lose its legitimacy because of one issue. And yet... For me, that one issue is so important as it is to many people because this is an example of how if we keep pushing forward on projects like this, we're going to do immense amounts of damage at this particular historical moment, I think, are even more problematic than when they happened, say, 100 years ago. Colonization is ongoing. We've had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada. We have all of the recommendations and the reports. And if literally we cannot think reconciliation, we cannot think about Indigenous land rights, we cannot be respectful of treaty-to-treaty negotiations and relations at a point in time in which we're supposed to be both transitioning to a new energy system and dealing with all of those issues because we can't somehow think through the two at the same time, well, then we're just really not up for the challenge of dealing with the climate crisis and the planet will deal with us. Like, you know. Yeah, thanks for that overview. And I think what's really cool about especially this series is that we're able to speak to some of the people that came out and talked about the the solar farm from various perspectives. Um, as listeners will kind of find out if they listen to the series, we speak to, to people like David Dodge, who's also on ETAC, which has a new, a slightly new name now, and is also a media producer and kind of advocate of uh, uh, around renewable energies and kind of leaders in renewable energies, entrepreneurs uh, who are kind of leading the way. Um, we spoke to Charles Richmond, who is uh, part of the Sierra Club here 
here in Edmonton who's very interested in conservation within the River Valley. People, uh, we spoke to people like Raquel Ferro, who's a former physician um, and also very invested in in the question of solar and community solar. And and then people like Cody Sharphead, who uh, is a member of Enoch and also one of the consultation coordinators for Enoch and an archaeologist who was involved in, or at least uh, privy to some of the documentation around the digs in that space. So it's been really interesting to kind of learn about the this this kind of um, the process of, of the solar farm and also get people's different perspectives on it. And I just wanted to to ask you um, about the kind of importance of that 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 um, kind of listening to various groups when it does come to these complex conversations and how this maybe relates to a, a deep energy literacy approach. Why is it important to kind of draw upon these different perspectives? Yeah, one thing I'd add to what you just uh, commented on is that you've named all the people who agreed. Yes, yeah, we <laughs> to also spoke to some other people, right? That yeah. won't be um, in in the podcast, but yeah, yeah, we also spoke to a number of people who won't be in the podcast and who have chosen not to be named because we live in a world in which there are power relations linked to energy projects, and their jobs might be at stake, um, their reputations might be at stake, and so so they don't want to be named. So I thought that's also worth mentioning because otherwise our slate looks. Perhaps a bit jaded towards, mm -hmm. you know, people um, very concerned with uh, climate activism when that, in fact, is not everyone that we spoke to. So, I mean, you know, I've read a lot of environmental philosophy and I understand theoretically and intellectually how different perspectives on the environment um, intersect and clash with one another at different moments. But it's very interesting to live those beliefs and to talk to people who perhaps don't even know where um, their thinking aligns and collides with others that they have worked together with to find solidarities, right? Because what's interesting about this project is that not only were there unusual suspects protesting uh, the E.L. Smith solar farm project, but also there were some very strange alliances, which which often happens in politics too. And so it's been very interesting, you know, um, to have a front row seat to watching how all of that has played out and to understanding it not only as, you know, environmental philosophy or a political issue, but also as something that's deeply uh, emotional and uh, there's lots of affect around it. And I think that we also need to understand that climate change evokes a lot of affective responses, that the demand on us to change our lives evokes a lot of things, fear, um, uh, excitement, <laughs> all sorts of things. And so uh, so for that reason, it's been very interesting to listen to people meaningfully, to put a real human face to what it means to have very different uh, ecological philosophies coming together in, in the same person for whatever reasons, because of their situatedness in relationship to the, to, the, to the project, in relationship to this place that we call Edmonton that's on Papas Chase and Cree and Métis lands and Territory 6 in, you know, on a, on a planet that is, you know, carrying a very high carbon load at the moment and that is, you know, in need of, in, in need for all of us to, to make dramatic changes. So, yeah, I've really enjoyed talking to everyone. Yeah, and it's been really, really interesting uh, as as someone who's able to also listen to the interviews to hear again those the, not just the complexity of the situation, but like you mentioned, the the kind of complexity within one person or one kind of group's perspective that it's not uh, kind of black and white, cut and dry. It's uh, things are messy, and so trying to actually listen, like, like you like you said, in order to think through the problem maybe in a different way, um, which is I guess something to that I wanted to ask you about is uh, how you kind of position yourself within a 
a project like this because, of course, we're sharing the interviews with uh, with our listeners as part of the podcast. But this is also part of your broader research, right? Something that you're studying in your own research program. And I'm curious to know how you position yourself as someone who is part of some of these committees or who uh, these kinds of projects cross your your desk, so to speak, um, in a professional way. And then it's also part of your research. So you've spoken about this a little bit already. Um, but yeah, I don't know if you wanted to expand a little bit on how you're positioning yourself within the within the research. Yeah, it's a question that I'm asked a lot. It's a question that I think about a lot. It's a question that's hard to answer, so I don't always want to answer it because, you know, how I think about it at one time might be quite different than how I think about it another time. Um, but one thing that I think has been consistent for me since I started doing all of this work is that I do this work um, very much from a... Uh, position in which I am deeply entrenched and not objective and I would challenge anybody who makes any claims to objectivity. So, um, you know, 15 years ago, if you were working on these issues, you were basically called a, you know, a tree-hugging communist feminist or something and um, people, people didn't take it very seriously and certainly if you were making these comments in Alberta, you faced a certain kind of resistance because it was, you know, sort of seen as disloyal or problematic and if you made these uh, statements elsewhere uh, thinking you might find solidarity, then you were seen as an Albertan. And so I do actually come from Alberta um, and now I actually live and work here again as an adult. And so I understand, uh, I think, a pretty broad spectrum of relationships to, for example, the oil industry, to uh, a range of different kinds of identities. Um, and I try to be... I try to be generous in my thinking with people because I understand that actually most people think they're doing the right thing. And when they don't, they are usually motivated by trying to do another right thing, which might be provide for their family or be loyal to something, whatever it is, right? Ideas of what it means to be Albertan to an employer to, I don't know, a, a cohort group, a network, something like that. Um, and what's also interesting is that, for example, with the E.L. Smith Solar Project, basically nobody went into that with some sort of like grand villainous plan, right? I mean, every person involved in these projects thinks they're helping something in some way. People want to put in solar projects for many different reasons. And I think in the case of E.L. Smith Solar uh, Farm, it's really to respond to the demands of Edmontonians to begin an energy transition. And, uh, you know, the project itself would be in the River Valley and it would stand as a symbol because for people using it as a recreational space, they would see this large uh, solar project, solar functions in an interesting that way that way because it's very visible and it would be a visible sign that we're making a transition. It would also mean that a greater percentage of our energy load was being created locally and this becomes important for many kinds of renewables because unlike fossil energy, they cannot be transported such great distances. Um, but, you know, nobody went into the L. Smith Solar Project thinking that they were doing something problematic or bad. What they thought was, I'm doing all these fantastic things. And sometimes it can be a bit of an affront to the ego to find out that your fantastic, noble, uh, you know, socially justice motivated project runs up against somebody else's um, 
rights or um, what they're working for. And in this case, you know, um, runs up against what some Edmontonians want from their river valley, runs up against what Indigenous communities are demanding from um, Canada in nation-to-nation relationships in terms of respecting the land and the histories that are, you know, buried in the archaeological findings of the land. And so it's about being flexible and able to... um, Get a bit of a bruised ego because social justice is difficult, but instead of getting too caught up in where our conflicts are, I really just keep saying, let's just align our solidarities. There are so many solidarities that can be organized around energy transition. And yes, sometimes they'll bump up against each other, but then let's just be honest and say, geez, I didn't realize that, or I never thought of that, or what can I learn from you about this in this moment? And what can I learn in this moment that can carry us forward in a more socially just way to achieve a more equitable future, a more equitable transition, a more equitable future. So, um, yeah, so everybody's doing, we're we're all doing the best we can. You know, we're all making decisions quickly. Some of us are making good decisions, bad decisions. We have to try things. Some things will work. Some things will fail. Some projects will be good. Some won't be good, but say, hey, okay, that one had a few problems with it. And some of them probably could have been avoided if we'd thought of this, this, and this. So we're going to take those things in consideration next time. And next time it still might be a boondoggle because there'll be things we didn't foresee, but we, we have to stop being so arrogant about these things and saying, well, this is the way things are done. And this policy is here because of this, because what are policies and what are laws? Um, actually, they're the institutionalization a lot of times of social injustice and power relations. So really, most of these policies probably need to be remade. So where we can see that happening, be part of the change, right? So I just say, you know, if people want to cry hypocrite, we are all hypocrites. You know, we, we can't live outside of the system. We live in a global petro culture. And, um, you know, people love to critique Greta these days because, you know, she's speaking here in North America about environmental issues and, you know, there have been Indigenous people saying these things for a long time. And so I just say, yes, Greta is saying these things and some people are listening and they can listen differently to Greta than to Indigenous people. And if the media is going to give Greta a lot of attention, then the media can't then act as though Greta created these imperial structures. The media itself is also part of this imperial colonial history of giving a lot of attention to um, cute young white girls and not so much to Indigenous activists, right? And so um, I just think, you know, Everybody has to do something in this transition. So whatever you're bringing to it, Greta's bringing something to it. Other people are bringing other things to it. And we all live in it. So none of us, even if you're vegan and you don't drive a car and you, I don't know, levitate to work, I don't know, you're still part of this system. You still live in a global culture in which everything, everything in your world is probably made from oil or petrochemicals to some degree, whether that means that the actual material textural uh, stuff is is petrochemical or it was moved around the world that way. And certainly um, this is even more true for all of the quote unquote developed nations that have most benefited from these exploitations, right? And so, yeah, we're all in it. We're all in it together. So there's no sense pointing fingers and saying, you're more in it than me. Let's instead just say, how do we get out of this together, right? 
Yeah, I think that's what I'm, I'm, I appreciate about your work so much. And also uh, thinking through kind of deep solarities and deep energy literacy is trying to really grapple with both the material kind of like these petrocultural kinds of um, assemblages that we're all part of, but also the immaterial uh, assemblages, which you mentioned before, these questions around anxiety and, and affect and desire and how we're linked up not only through our infrastructures and our roads and our things like that, um, but also how we're linked up through these these things that are much harder to, to, to kind of point to, like through these emotional kind of a affective um, uh, relationships as well. And I think that that's what I've learned so much from you working through these questions is how to uh, position ourselves in a way that, of course, we're implicated. We're, we're all part of this. Hypocriticism is kind of a, in, in, in many ways, I find it um, a distracting kind of, uh, a distracting accusation, this kind of question of hypocriticism, but instead working together to think through the questions in, in deeper ways, which again, I think leads back to the, the question or the, the approach of deep energy literacy. Um, so I guess that leads to kind of a, a bigger question and maybe a, coming close to, to uh, the, the end of our little chat is um, how your work around deep energy literacy, in this case around deep solarities and thinking through problems with many different people, even if they're coming from different perspectives, how all of this is kind of invested in a bigger question of imaginaries and future imaginaries and how we might imagine more livable future for all, or, or as you've kind of mentioned before, imagine the transition as not being something uh, uh, that is characterized by loss or uh, giving up certain things, although that's that might be necessary, but actually characterized by the idea of being able to gain a different a different way of being in the world. That actually might be something that we we desire, right? Um, so I'm curious for, uh, to hear a little bit more about, uh, or if you could speak a little bit more about how this question of future imaginings and speculations might play into a politics of the present and how how the question of kind of a speculative energy future plays into your work. Yeah, you know, I, I, I run this project called Just Powers. And when I started out, it was pretty clear that it was going to be a research creation project informed by intersectional and decolonial and indigenizing uh, praxis and methods and that kind of thing. And uh, I thought, well, we'll, we'll get people together and we'll imagine other futures and we'll write all these great you know, stories and help people imagine this. I mean, all we have now are pictures of apocalypse and Will Smith, you know, striding down, you know, the street guns ablazing. This is how people think of the future, right? We, they're often very dark. Um, the movie industry's made a lot of money about thinking this way, you know, when I could get into all the reasons that, you know, happens and what the worldviews are that inform that. But, you know, how do, how, how do we do this? So then it became quite evident early on interviewing, you know, hundreds of people really in the first couple of years and asking every single one of them at the end of the interview about imaginaries that actually our ability to think the future as anything other than the present was pretty atrophied, right? And if we could, then it, it always kind of like went to these apocalyptic ideas that while people might think they're being original, are actually like already highly scripted, right, by uh, the narratives that exist in the world, whether they're biblical or coming out of Hollywood, right? And so uh, I've, you know, been taking very seriously what it means to really exercise our imaginaries, 
And I've also been doing a lot of thinking and advocating for this as serious intellectual research and work because, you know, we have speculative financial futures that are very serious, right? This is serious business. People are, you know, banking lots of money on this, right? And yet somehow if we talk about imagining other ways of living together or imagining other futures, this seems very froofy like something that artists and writers do and writers writers and artists somehow uh I think probably sort of globally, but um, certainly in, you know, Western culture, certainly in our, you know, petro culture where, you know, highly paid masculinized labor forces are, you know, practical and much more valued than, say, working on an imaginary of the future. Um, I think that we really need to rethink that, right? What are we without these imaginaries of the future? What are we as humans if we aren't the stories that we are telling and the the stories that explain ourselves in relation to the world? And so since we need to remake our relations to the world, we really need to remake some stories, right? And so... Um, I've been thinking about that with artists and policymakers and engineers and scientists working on collaborative teams, for example, on speculative energy futures. And, you know, I, I think it's important that we all take on this work of thinking not just the practicalities of what does it mean to power my house with a solar panel, but what does it mean to live in a future in which I cannot live the way I'm living now, whether that's because in my community, we don't respond to climate crisis and therefore we're unprepared for the futures that await us because the planet and the ecosystems are transforming, or whether that means because we live entirely differently because we have responded to the imperatives of the moment, right? And so... So yeah, I, I take it as serious business, right? It's very serious business. And I do that work uh, in meaningful interdisciplinary ways because I think that the challenges of the 21st century cannot be solved without interdisciplinary work. Um, you know, the problems that originate in thinking in disciplinary ways, whether that means that you live, you work in a ministry in the government, there's one ministry for energy, one ministry for natural resources, one ministry for, you know, something else. And I'm like, how are natural resources and energy and forest, like, how are these all different ministries? How does that even make sense, right? Um, and it doesn't make sense, right? It means that decisions are being made and communication isn't happening. So it also means that we need to communicate better as humans and we need to have um, ways of doing that quickly and with more people on the planet than they've ever been on the planet before, right? So um, if we need to learn anything in the world beyond um, living differently and living differently in relationship to one another and and all of that. We need to learn to tell those stories and share those ideas because we shouldn't all have to reinvent the wheel, right? I mean, there's lots of great things happening on the planet. When people throw all the impossibilities at me, there's already plenty of examples of places that are making the transition, have made the transition, are living differently, are living great lives, you know, healthier. The, the thing is that the benefits, I, I constantly say, why does everyone think that change is lost? Change can be gained. We could have better lives. I can think of a lot of ways in which my life would be better if it wasn't organized this way. And I think 
uh, about this in terms of women and in terms of women's lives and in terms of all of our lives. I also think about this in terms of what role I play in reproducing these, maybe not grand systems of injustice, like we, you know, institutions take on these things like equity, diversity, inclusion. We try to think socially just ways. But how does sending gazillions of emails every day to all of your colleagues and demanding things on a short timeline that really aren't necessary also perpetuate a system in which we're all expending too much personal energy? Maybe we could transform the way we work in relationship to other people so that we can all power down a little bit in so many meaningful ways that also would have an impact on the energy systems uh, and, the, and the load on the energy systems. There's just like so many ways in which our lives are completely toxic, whether that means because we all work 24-7 in North America, either out of necessity because we uh, you know, work in precarious employment or because we have secure jobs in which this is just like part of the culture that's demanded of us as an expectation. And how, for example, you know, studying this, this treatment plant, the treatment plant keeps having to expand or grow or go through renovations, that kind of thing, because, well... The population's expanding, right? We can think about that. And we have plans for our population to expand anymore. I won't, maybe we'll do a future podcast series on the, the city plan for the city of Edmonton that imagines our population doubling, which will also increase our energy demand loads. When we know that we already live on a planet that has mm, probably too many people. Um, and what does it mean also that we probably... I mean, I don't want to make any grand claims because I'm still researching this, but we probably have to treat the water more and differently because we are contaminating it more and differently through our industrial practices, through the kinds of clothing that we wear that shed petrochemicals and microbeads and everything else into the water systems that then have to be treated at all these treatment plants that then require solar farms on them to keep them going. Like there's just so many ways in which we're increasing the load and the demand on each other and on our environments because we're just not living in very healthy ways, right? So we can talk about, you know, riding bikes and not driving cars and, you know, wearing organic cotton and not shedding microbeads. Or we can talk meaningfully about how do we completely remake our world, remake our relationships to each other, power down in real and meaningful ways in every facet of our lives so that we might live more generous, joyful, you know, human and multi-species love affairs. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I hear that. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for the chat. I've learned so much as always, and I can't wait to continue the conversations. And thanks to our listeners as well. Uh, in the episodes that follow, we will explore this idea of deep energy literacy and specifically deep solarities in more depth and with other people. So please visit us online at justpowers.ca to follow the conversation. Thank you for listening to the Deep Energy Literacy Podcast. Be sure to visit justpowers.ca to learn more about these issues, access resources, and discover related content. Just Powers is made possible by support from the University of Alberta's Future Energy Systems Canada First Research Excellence Fund, the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Cool Institute of Advanced Study, and Campus Saint-Jean. This series of the Deep Energy Literacy Podcast is produced by Jesse Beyer and engineered by Catlin W. Cusick.